You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today. I'm really excited for the conversation we're about to have because it's about the runaway smash hit miniseries on Netflix, The Queen's Gambit. I know you've all seen it because everyone has seen this show. It's amazing. It's super stylized, takes place in the Cold War and is about the chess scene at the time. Now yesterday we talked to Eric Hain who did the mixing, the final mixing, and he was super interesting to talk to. That is episode 150A, this is episode 150B, and today we're going to talk to the sound editorial crew and the Foley artists that worked on it. So without further ado, let's introduce our guests. Joining us today is series sound supervisor Greg Switlowski. You've heard Greg's work on previous projects like Billions, this year's great movie, The 40-Year-Old Version, I loved that movie, and the previous series by the creators of Queen's Gambit, the criminally underrated Godless. Greg, you have a lot of credits on your IMDb as a dialogue editor and dialogue supervisor. Uh, What made you make the jump from that to being the sound supervisor overall? I always like doing dialogue. That's what I, you know, found myself most comfortable doing on projects in terms of being a supervisor and just making sure that the show is moving forward as as planned, you know, like that is kind of in my nature, I guess. So that's what uh, guided me to doing sound supervision. Also with us is Eric Hirsch. Eric was a sound editor and re-recording mixer on Queen's Gambit. His previous credits include Juliet Naked, Tales of the City, and Divorce. Eric, welcome to Tonebenders. It looks like Greg and yourself have a lot of overlapping credits on IMDb. How did you two first meet? We first met working on the film... uh, Nice Guy Johnny. Thank you. Nice Guy Johnny, Ed Burns' film, uh, back in 2012, something like that. We were both sort of like the young kids who were given a shot at like doing the whole thing ourselves, kind of. So he was the supervisor and I was the mixer. And we did that, sort of muddled through it, and then just worked well together. We're sort of around the same age and have similar aesthetics and I think similar kind of studio vibes. So it was, you know, we work well together. I was trying to look on IMDb to see how many projects we've done together. It's at least 10 or something like that, right, Kirk? Yeah, <laughs> a number. See, that proves that you do get along well together because if you if you know the exact number, that means you haven't enjoyed it. It's like, <laughs> oh, it's been eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So also joining us today is Rachel Chauncey. She's responsible for all the Foley and Queen's Gambit. Her previous projects she's worked on include I, Tanya, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Death, Destiny and the series Warrior. Rachel, welcome to the show. In a couple sentences, can you tell us how you got into Foley? Um, I got into Foley because I have a theater background and I leaned towards sound when I started studying or interning and assisting uh, in post-production. And uh, it's very detailed work that a lot of people don't really want to do. And I just happen to have a, you know, the patience for it, I guess. That drew me to it. I loved the Foley in the show. We're going to start talking about that soon. Thank you. But finally, we have our returning champion, Leo Marcel. Leo was previously on Tonebenders to talk about his work on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in our episode 111. Leo's previous work includes Hunters, Deepwater Horizon, and Godless, which we mentioned earlier. Leo, you're based in California, while everyone else on this talk is uh, New York City area based. Can you tell me how this production managed its bi-coastal teams? How, How did you guys all work together as a team? We're in touch with each other every day. With the time differences, we kind of found a rhythm. And Greg was on top of pretty much hurdling everything on that side and getting stuff over to us. And it was really a a team effort of of a mix. Greg, I wonder if you could expand on the idea that for this project, you followed Wiley Stateman's ABCs, which is always be cutting 
and by extension, always be mixing, the rapid prototyping, the always be evolving the soundtrack from the very, very beginning you step onto it. I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate on everybody's role within that philosophy. Basically, Eric and I were teaming up to just get as much sound into the film as possible at the beginning. Um, so it's kind of like doing a, a feature film with, you know, three temps, basically. Like your first temp, you just try to power through everything, get as much final sound as you can into the, the project, and then do a temp mix on it, and then move forward from there. At the beginning, it was kind of a, s a smaller crew. It was me and Eric, and we had two effects editors, James Redding and Pat Cicero, that helped us out at the first temp. That was all pre-pandemic, so it was sort of like uh, just a regular project in terms of like how you manage to get files to and from people, because Eric and I were both at the same studio. Actually, Eric, you were in the cutting room. Sure, I was working in Light Iron with the picture department. So basically it was the picture department, then down the hall was the music editor, and next to the music editor was me, and I had basically like a little mini mix stage, which is the model that Wiley had pioneered, Wiley and Eric Hayne pioneered on Godless, which is something that works really well for the picture department because they can be working with actual tracks as opposed to slugging in their own sort of like crummy temp, you know, picture department sound effects. They're actually working with what's going to be in the final mix. And it's good for us, too, because we don't have to just cram everything in at the end. We could sort of, you know, be layering it in and, you know, start working on things from the beginning and start building a library of sounds they're going to make it in eventually. So Greg was working at Goldcrest, so I would be, we would just be working together, sending files in the same way you would sort of anywhere, two facilities. So how did the West Coast arm of this operation come into play? It's really Wiley. Wiley is, you know, has the very strong relationship with Scott, the showrunner, and Wiley is, you know, the sound designer on the project. This and is Wiley's statement. I don't think we said his last name yet. So Wiley's statement, yes. Do we need to say his last name? Yeah, exactly. He's got nine Oscar nominations or something like that. We all know who he is. So yes. Yeah. I've had a relationship with Wiley for a number of years, going back to a film called Run All Night that we had worked on together. Um, and then I'd also done Godless. So then I was also involved with Queen's Gambit. It was always sort of like it's, it was more about the people on the film rather than where they were sitting. So I think as we move forward, that just became more and more true. Well, I think it became more and more true for the entire world, because when you started on this, it was pre-pandemic and then you had to transition. Rachel, you work out of your house kind of, right? So the pandemic almost didn't make a difference to you, maybe. No, it actually made no difference at all. I remember when Eric emailed me, we were sort of discussing the schedule and like doing a few weeks of work here and a few weeks of work there. And I remember thinking, well, the only reason I could not possibly work up in a particular week was I was going to Jazz Fest and that's my week I can't work. And then, of course, we got locked down in mid-March, so I was trapped at home anyway. So it was, it was very easy to schedule because it's just me and it's, it's all in my house. So you do Foley in an interesting way. Can you tell us your Foley process? In terms of physically where I work, I work in my basement, uh, which is below grade, and my, uh, the first floor of my brownstone. And I live upstairs in the two floors uh, above that. So um, I, I just head down there, depending on if I'm doing wood floors and furniture and things like that, I work on the ground floor, which, which has wood and tile and a kitchen and a bathroom and doors. And if I'm doing um, really quiet stuff, Russell, or say the chess pieces, um, I do most of my props down in the basement. And are you recording yourself at the same time? I am, yeah. I, I basically uh, have both floors wired with separate interfaces and speakers and, you know, television monitors. And, and I, um, I, 
you know, I hit the keyboard, I run into place, I do the thing, I go back, and then I edit right then and there, typically. Yeah, it's always fun listening to Rachel's Foley because you can hear the space bar and then feet walking towards the mic. (laughs) So you always have a good perspective on feet on all of her recordings. That is true. And yeah, I mean, I do, I, I do it right then and there. So I don't, I don't have a lot of waste, I think, in my tracks. It's like if I, I determine whether or not I have what I need, I often edit it right into place, and then I move on. I can keep it pretty tight working this way. So Leo, when did you come in on this project? Because I believe when we talked to you about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you played the role that Eric is playing in this project by being kind of immersed with the picture crew. Yeah, that one I was in really early. Um, on this one, it was Eric Hirsch and Greg playing that role. I, I came in after they've made a pass of the episodes to start focusing on really story point design, making a thicker soundtrack, some of the visual effects that were coming in and finishing. That was one of my main focuses because we kept that was the one thing that never really finished until the very end was the visual effects kept updating. And kept changing sometimes chess pieces on the ceiling where cement would be one size and next time they were wooden and be doing different movements so those could continually change and just to create something to read through the mix that would be fun for the film was my biggest role well that's a good segue so we've kind of talked about everybody's role on the show let's talk about the actual sound work that you did now the series starts off with kind of a dour visual style in the kids school Everything's kind of uh, muted colors. And as the series goes on, by the end, there's fantastic wardrobe, very brightly uh, designed rooms. Did you approach the sound design in the same way? For sure. Um, I think the great part about doing this series is every episode is sort of like its own unique space. It, It was very easy to evolve the track with it because you're in a different, basically a different location or a different, you know, city or something throughout the whole series the styles can change a bit between episodes and and build with it. Um, We did try to have a focus on certain sounds and certain elements that would become signature to the series that we definitely did a lot of work to to change the sound per episode, but at the same time make it seem seamless throughout the whole series. You know, one of the things that was kind of interesting about the series is that the first episode was like two and a half hours. It was like its own enormous thing so it almost occupied a sort of disproportionate share of like the whole series for a little while so there was like the methuen experience and then there was everything else you know so methuen took a while to sort of like that's the name of the school that she was in right exactly the orphanage that she was in so that that had its own sort of like challenges and trying to keep that alive and bringing in little girls to do loop group for the orphanage orphans in the background and then it's just sort of stylistically totally different from everything else and you know once you get into the other episodes then you're in the world you know there are places other than large you know echoey rooms filled with sad girls there's like more more things so (laughs) as the locations change throughout the whole series you can you know build upon that and obviously you know like a big russian theater hall with people and very serious chess tournament is going to just sound more thrilling than Uh, an orphanage in Lexington, Kentucky. Obviously, the series is based around the game of chess, which to those who aren't uh, regular players, you know, that's not the most uh, exciting sounding topic. But these games of chess in the show, it's super tension filled. And a lot of that is left to you guys because the imagery is just pieces moving around on a chessboard. Do you want to talk about how scared you were when you realized how much was going to be on you? 
We had a lot of good production sounds of chess, just like the playing, which was sort of what was in the show for the majority of the process. Um, and we did a final Foley pass on all of the Foley, basically every one of the sequences. And it was just, you know, very eye-opening on how much life that brought to all the games. We should probably also spare a moment here for Carlos Rafael Rivera, the composer, where he would just say he was faced with the enormity of his task because, you know, the sounds that we brought were great and everything, but with no music, there's there's only so much drama that you can bring to it. So he really had to do a lot of like the sort of emotional heavy lifting. And then that allowed us to sort of skate on the surface of the sound. You know, like had we not had his foundation there, it would have been a much longer and slower series than it is. Rachel, so. how did you approach doing the chess foley? I was very lucky in that I was able to um, to get the prompts and the clocks and the boards and the chess pieces. And, I, you know, I did several passes depending on what I was looking for. Um, you know, it's just like doing a, a sword fight, but instead of using weapons, you use pawns and, and knights and rooks. And I did a first pass, which was ups and downs, the, the big moves. And then I did uh, more subtle passes, which is, you know, chess pieces clinking up or clanking up against each other when they, you know, you take someone's other, you know, someone's piece. Um, and then I did a final very subtle pass of the, uh, the movement of the pieces on the board. You know, it's a lot of fun to do. I mean, the, the cinematography in it is so beautiful that you just want to add these little sounds to really emphasize the tension of the game and, and the beauty, you know. I mean, chess pieces are absolutely gorgeous. The boards are gorgeous. The clocks are gorgeous. And, um, and adding that, that element, you know, was, was a lot of fun. It was really cool. I'm not sure how much Eric and Leo had to do with this as part of the mixing crew, but how those little sounds punched through in the final mix really was a stroke of genius. You noticed it, but in a way that was completely realistic. It didn't feel like it was too loud, but it was too loud. Like chess pieces don't actually make much noise, <laughs> but it seemed just like that's the way this world should be. Everyone talks about the chess, but honestly, the pills and the booze were a lot of fun too. <laughs> Do you want to elaborate on that? No. <laughs> Rachel's a method Foley artist, so yeah, let's just, just let's let's not go too far into this. Tanked every day. <laughs> I had a great time during quarantine. Um, the I mean the the uh, the the you know this 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 sense that the Beth was this little girl almost through the whole thing, like this doll of a person. Uh, and all of the, the props, like the huge thing of pills at the school, you know, were like massive. And it was just a lot of fun to look at, a lot of fun to do. And, um, you know, I love the, the capsule effects and the cocktails that run through the, uh, through the whole film. It's just a, a lot of fun. What did you use for the giant pill bottle? Um, I have a huge mason jar, like the biggest mason jar. So I kind of went realistically with that. And, and I save all of the medication that I have that expires and all of the Advils and the whatever's, you know. So uh, I hoard I hoard all of that and, and use it when necessary. Well, that's handy. I, I don't have enough Advil in my house to fill up a jar <laughs> that big. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> the other moment I wanted to talk about the sound design for the main character sometimes has these drugged out hallucinations where chess pieces appear magically on the ceiling and she visualizes games. And there's some cool sound design going on with that. The visual effects went through a lot of versions. So I had a lot of different uh, goes at it. So I, and I kind of kept started to merge different temps together to make one version. It was a lot of fun to do. A lot of organic sounds to make them. 
a lot of pro sub harmonic plugin saturators and reverbs it was like painting a picture for each one each one was different and all had some pieces from the other one to pull together and be reminiscent of her past michelle the editor she would send a clip she's like i don't know how this is going to work and <laughs> and then we'd do a pass of sound and send it to her and she's like this is great but can you do this and this and this and it'd be two or three four or five rounds and and she's really particular and she has great notes and we'd find it and then the scott would see it and hear it and he would have a note and we so it'd come, go through a couple of people and eventually it'd stick in there and when we find kind of the taste they like we continue to keep it in the similar realm as she goes forward and continue to hallucinate in a normal sports movie and really this is kind of a sports movie well not movie tv series uh when a big move happens the crowd goes wild but in chess the crowd has to stay muted but still you've made the crowd present which is a quite a trick how did you go about doing that and how much of that was loop group how much was from library how, how did you make that magic happen the majority of the the crowds in the chess tournaments were all group. They were all very particular reactions. Um, we kind of dealt with that same sort of thing while we were on the the stage for the first couple of episodes. Um, how do we, you know, how do we keep you know the audience alive, but also like nobody talks during chess, and you would get shunned if you talk during a chess match. So it's actually a plot point. The first time she goes into mm-hmm. one of those, she starts talking, gets shushed right down. Yeah. So there, there's no hiding in there. You, it's a plot point in the movie that the crowd has to be quiet, but yeah. then the crowd can't be quiet. You know, pretend like you're in a courtroom or pretend like you're in a library, but we still need to hear you. So do it a little bit louder than you would. And, you know, most group actors come from a theater background anyway, so they're all about the theater whisper. That's mainly how we kept all those rooms alive. The bigger, the louder applauses or something at the end, we could rely on some sound effects tracks and such like that. It was also kind of a, like a challenge for the group casting. So it was Dan Fink and Bruce Winant, and they had to find, because it goes over you know multiple countries and a few continents. So we had to try and find the kind of reactions in you know the proper languages, even when it's not something that you're not really supposed to be like clocking consciously, you know, so that was a challenge for them. There's a big match in Mexico City, a big match in Paris, a big match in Moscow. So yeah, those crowds all had to sound completely different. In a way, it's it's sort of thankful that the pandemic happened for this particular situation because, you know, normally it's like if you're doing loop group in New York, you're hiring New York loop group actors or, you know, like maybe one person from California will come out. But when we kind of switched to everybody had to do this from home, it sort of opened up the casting pool in a way that we could get like an actual Russian speaking actor that knew English to do the Russian loop group it made that process like a lot more hyper-focused on what kind of language and what kind of accent do we want in or need. How do you do loop group in uh, a lockdown? <laughs> like, did you just record everybody individually or? That was like my biggest fear from the beginning of everybody working from home. We had managed to get the first four episodes recorded just like the beginning of March, luckily. Um, and then the rest of the time was spent like, let's wait on loop group. Let's let's see if like maybe next month it'll be a little better. Maybe next month it'll be a little better. And I kept pushing uh, the producers to just hold off on loop group for as long as possible. But we sort of hit the point where it was it was coming up on July. We knew that's when we were doing our final mix. So it's like, okay, we got to pull the trigger with this. And thankfully at that time, some options had opened up that weren't. Um, as ridiculous as everybody recording locally, sending me files, me putting back together a puzzle piece. 
I guess it was sort of similar to the way we're doing this podcast where, you know, everybody's remote at home. Everybody, you know, was required to get a decent caliber microphone. It was like a Zoom session that um, we used this program called Clean Feed. So all of the audio went from each actor cleanly to um, our remote engineer who then combined everybody and recorded it in a Pro Tools session. So everything could then come to me, you know, like time stamped in the right spot in relatively decent sync because they were also able to send the picture to each of the actors in the Zoom call. That's that's mainly how we did it. What we would just try to do is rather than having, you know, eight open mics at any one time, it's like the actors that were not doing a cue would be in mute. And you would only unmute yourself if you were doing a cue. Well, you must have been very thankful for those big reverberant rooms when mixing that. So you could just wash that all out and reverb. <laughs> I actually got kind of aggressive with it where I was telling people like, no, this is great. Like, you shouldn't be close to your microphone. Like, you know, you're standing over there when you're acting. Like, why would, you know, so it actually made those big rooms sound bigger because we had these variable kind of sounding rooms. And then it was sort of nice when if you did like, two or three people at one time and everybody was somewhat different, you know, like different spaced around their microphones. When it all got recorded, it just sounded like three different people in three different parts of a room, which actually is more realistic to what it would sound like if you were standing in a room. This series was broken up into six, seven episodes, seven? but it really feels kind of like one massive project. Did you tackle it in episode format? I, I don't know how um, Greg and Eric worked, but I know that I did uh, the first three episodes together, and then I think the next two, and then the final two. At some point when I started, it was six, and then it got changed to seven. It got rebalanced into seven. And that's how I delivered them until, like, towards the end of the whole process. I started sort of delivering um, M&E Foley, you know, for just missing things here and there. And then I delivered them, I think, by episode. But the, the first two or three pushes of Foley work were done in thirds, I would say, of the whole series. Basically, you know, we had the whole thing shot at once. And so it was kind of like working on a big movie, but it was broken into episodes. At some point, they decided that there was this sort of big, massive restructuring where they went from six episodes to seven, which didn't affect the first episode and didn't affect the last episode. But everything in between got kind of like mixed around. But, um, you know, we sort of we tried to take it in batches also because we knew that we were going to be working for such a long time on it. But so we wanted to get some stuff into the show as, as soon as possible, but wanted to leave ourselves more recording time to get the stuff that was going to be like the real detail and the real fine stuff. So I would just sort of say, like, here's you know, I would I would ask for like, we need this for these three episodes to get this to a point where we can have a mix that's okay, like a good temp mix for them to to cut to. A lot of it was just sort of like getting them a, a soundtrack that they could used to gauge how the cut was working for a long time, you know, so they would both Scott and Michelle Tesoro were, are just sort of unable to look at a cut that doesn't have the right sound. You know, they just, they can't say, well, okay, when the sound is right, this will probably work. They just have to have a more fully realized version of the sound in order to, to say, okay, yeah, the, the pacing is good. This, this works, these beats work, you know, so, so it was kind of just like layers in a way. And and to that point, they see this as a big picture. So it's it's not just, you know, seven episodes, it's one series. So that was sort of the, the whole reason behind the process of us being on from the beginning is it's it's basically like it's it's a large feature film, you know, and they, they work on it in temp temp mixes um and they want everything in it, you know, as much as you can at all times. 
And then if something from the beginning of episode four makes more sense in the beginning of episode two, they can switch it. So it's almost like each episode is its own reel. Um, it would get even more complicated than that because then they would break each episode up into four reels. Right. <laughs> so then you're working in four reels in one episode and then, you know, reel two of episode four goes to, you know, episode six. It gets like, it's it, it can kind of be passed around like that. Um, but I think that's all in service of the, the big picture, which is, you know, the end result. Well, thank you very much for joining me, everybody. It was really great talking to you. Uh, I don't think I mentioned it in the intro, but when I w watched the first episode, uh, when it came out, I wasn't really sure what I was getting into. And then I just kept hitting start on the next episode. And then it's 3.30 in the morning. I got to work, get up with the kids. And you, you guys ruined a week of my life, basically, with this show. Because I didn't sleep. And uh, thank you very much for that. I was entertained, but very tired during the day. <laughs> so thank you for joining me. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again sometime. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Great. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Great. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, right. thank you. Appreciate it. Hey there. If you're looking for more hot Queen's Gambit audio talk, Make sure you check out our episode 150A where we talk to Eric Hain about the mixing of Queen's Gambit. He's an excellent storyteller and has some cool tips for mixing dialogue, so make sure you check that out. Not only are these Queen's Gambit episodes our 150th episodes, but they are also our first episodes released under the banner of the Audio Podcast Alliance. If you're a fan of Tonebenders, I think you'll be a fan of a lot of these other podcasts. They all deal with working in sound professionally. There's the Location Sound Podcast, Soundbites Podcast, the Soundworks Collection, the Sound Effect Podcast, and many more. So occasionally you'll be hearing little rundowns at the end of our episodes of what's going on in these other podcasts. So if you take a listen and hear something that you think would be interesting, head over and listen to that podcast too. And, and maybe you'll be entertained and maybe even learn a little something. So thanks for listening today. Have a great time. We got some more amazing episodes coming your way, so stay tuned. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H, or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Sam from The Sound Architect. In our recent episodes, I've spoken to composer Patrick Kiest about his recent work on The Kissing Booth 1 and 2, and coming very soon, I'll share interviews with voice actor Jane Perry about her career as well as her role in Cyberpunk 2077, composers Mikolai Strawinski and Gary Scheiman about their soundtrack for Metamorphosis, and composer Chris Velasco about his soundtrack for Carrion. Find us at www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk. Hey, this is Christian from a Sound Effect podcast. In our latest episode, you will hear about designing sound for Netflix series The Crown and composing music for The Haunting of Blind Manor. Check it out at soundeffect.com forward slash podcast. <laughs> <laughs>